Good morning, church. I'd like to read Psalm 1, because uh, I want it to shape my prayers for us all as we're going to hear and receive the word this morning. So listen to Psalm 1, a familiar psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that we get to learn from this morning. Thank you that you have given us this instruction to shape and to to guide our minds and our hearts. And Lord, we want to be like a tree planted by streams of water. Lord, that's my prayer for your people today, that you would use this word to root them and establish them in the faith. And that you would use it to equip them to help others be more rooted and more established in the faith. Or that together we would be like trees planted by streams of water, always yielding its fruit in its given season. Our leaves would not wither, that we would prosper, that we would be rooted and more durable and reliable and rich in our fruit bearing. Lord, I thank you that you are able to do this. We thank you, Lord. That ultimately, Lord, as we want to become more rooted, Lord, we thank you that ultimately it doesn't depend on the strength of our root so much as the strength of the one in whom we are rooted. So, Lord, we rejoice in your Son, that you've given him to us to be received by faith. We thank you, Lord, that our roots can go down deep into him, and that we can bear fruit in every season. We don't have to be worried, but we can trust. Lord, I pray that you would use this word to root your people more fully in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I love that language of Psalm 1, especially that, that tree language. And I can't imagine creation, the world as we know it, without trees. Well, one, we wouldn't be able to breathe. But uh, I can't imagine even just aesthetically to not be able to look out and see the beauty of trees and to be able to have these faithful markers of seasons, right? We just got done watching them being heavy laden with snow, and now we're watching them be resurrected from the dead as they're blooming and blossoming, and it's a beautiful thing to watch, and they'll be in their full uh, growth through the summer and their foliage, and then we'll watch them get stripped bare again and prepare to bear up under another winter. But that's the question that comes to me sometimes is, you look at these trees and you stop and think about all that they go through in a year. And I haven't begun talking about the kind of drought that they can experience and the dry times and the and the this, the difficulty that brings, the stress it brings upon the tree, and yet they continue to stand. What what accounts for the tree being able to weather so much weather and diversity of weather? And of course we know so much of it comes down to the roots, right? The roots being established spread out, anchor, the taproot going down deep. And I think it's such a fitting picture for the Christian life. It's such a fitting picture that the scriptures 
uh, give to us to describe what God wants for us. He wants us to be firmly rooted, well-planted and established. And he wants us to, to uh, be able to withstand the difficulties that come our way. And this is, I think, the longing of every true Christian. We long to be more rooted and more firmly established. Do we not? This is our longing. And uh, the good news is it's also God's desire for us. And we see that kind of pulsate throughout the text that we're looking at this morning. And so listen to Paul's longing in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is what the Lord wants for us, for us to be rooted and established in the faith. And as I prayed, he wants each of us to be more rooted and established, but he also wants to equip us to help root and establish others in the faith. And I hope that this will be a really instructive word for those ends and that God will be pleased to use it. And so where we're going to go this morning, as we look at the text, um, we're going to look at the situation kind of on the ground here, verses uh, 2.17 through 3.1. Then we're going to look at the solution because um, there's some issues involved on the ground. So the situation, the solution. Then I want to close and spend most of the time here with seven strategies for helping establish others in the faith. Let's get really concrete. So look with me at the situation in First Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. I'm going to read it and then just briefly explain it. A lot of things are really straightforward in the passage before us today. So that's nice. But since we have been torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. I'll pause there for now. So what's, what's the situation? Paul says that we have been torn away. You may remember from the book of Acts when Paul was preaching with uh, Silas and Timothy in Thessalonica. Uh, persecution broke out, right? These Jews were jealous because many were starting to follow Christ. And some of the Jews were jealous, the ones that were not converted, were jealous, and they stirred up a mob, an unruly mob, against uh, Paul and his co-workers. Uh, they, attacked, um, they attacked the person that was hosting them, uh, named Jason. Uh, and then on top of that, they kind of poisoned the well politically. They went to the rulers and told them uh, lies that it sounded a lot like things that were said against Jesus to get him nailed to the cross, you know. Um, so they kind of poisoned the well. They got even the rulers suspicious of them, and so much so that they had to leave Thessalonica, and so they fled. And, and when they did, and they went to the next town, I think it was Berea, um, the Jews, um, unlike the noble Jews of Berea, uh, they, they pursued them, even there. It wasn't enough to kick them out of Thessalonica. They pursued them in hot chase to drive them even out of Berea. And so because of this level of persecution that's coming, Paul got ripped away. These workers, these missionaries, so they went there, preached the gospel, planted the church, but had to leave 
in a pretty short order. So they got ripped away. It felt like a you know a mother being ripped away from her children. This is what they were feeling emotionally because they didn't want to leave. They didn't want to. It was painfully abrupt. And they longed to give them more than they were able to, even at that time. And uh, so they're away from them physically, but not in heart. And he wants them to know that. And so uh, Paul, in fact, wants him to show, wants to express his care for them such that he's saying, look, not only were we torn away from you, we tried to get back to you, right? He said, I was trying over and over and over again to get back to you, um, but I was hindered by Satan. And he doesn't go into detail of how exactly he was hindered, um, but we know that Satan is bent on hindering not just evangelistic efforts, like the efforts of people that are really putting themselves out there in order to share the good news about Jesus with people. Right? We know Satan wants to oppose those efforts, but when he unsuccessfully opposes those efforts and the gospel breaks through, as it does everywhere it goes, um, to one degree or another, uh, then he tries to hinder the work of discipleship. Like he tries to hinder the work of gospel growth now and maturity. And so if the tree's been planted, he wants to do all that he can now to make sure that the roots don't get established. Okay? And Paul knows this, and so he's concerned uh, about them, and, uh, but he wants them to know, like, I made multiple efforts to get to you. He wants them to know that he's not just standing aloof, like he doesn't care. His absence, he just makes, wants to make sure that what's, that absence is communicating is not, I don't care. He wants them to know, I've done everything I can to get back to you. And he has reason for concern. This is part of, you know, kind of what's what's moving Paul as he writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit here, is that he's concerned that they would be shaken by their afflictions, right? Um, and Paul had told them, like every good disciple maker does, like he told them, you should expect trials and tribulations along the way, right? He's like, we're going to experience it and have even to get here and preach the gospel with you but also you're going to experience it, right? So he had, he wasn't there long, but he did explain that many times from many different angles, right? And so they knew that, but now all of it, all this is coming to pass. It's one thing to hear about the wave, now they're getting hit by the wave. It's one thing to hear about how hot the fire is, now they're in the fire, okay? And so he's concerned that they're going to be shaken by this tribulation as it's coming uh, to them. That's why he says in verse 3 that no one may be moved by these afflictions, right? And so he's concerned that they might be getting shaken by this because they're newer believers and this is really difficult on them. He's also concerned and has good reason to be concerned that they will be tempted by Satan, right? At the end of our passage, verse 5, um, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He knows that Satan is going to try to tempt them, to lure them away, and especially use affliction and pain to sour their hearts toward God, right? And toward the gospel that they have believed. And so he, he knows that Satan's going to try to get them to doubt God's goodness, to give up. And, uh, and he's concerned that his labor would be in vain because he invested much in them. And uh, no one likes to see their investments right? And so he cares about them. He's invested in them, and he doesn't want to see his labor in vain. He wants to see not just this profession, he wants to see the endurance of faith over time until Jesus comes back again. That's what he's laboring for. And so Paul has this intense 
desire for their good, for their well-being. Uh, he has this, he's writing with deep emotion here, this kind of heartfelt care to say, this was our desire. We were torn away from you. We greatly, earnestly desired to see you face to face when we can bear it no more. This is the language that Paul's using because he had this heartfelt care that's being expressed in this passage. And uh, he kind of gets to this point where being away from them, he can't take it anymore. Right? And I almost pictured like the dam at Little Falls, you know, and how you, it's, it's dammed up and sometimes one of the doors is open. Sometimes you can notice the door and it's just like leaking out, right? And so I kind of pictured that, like, and he was holding back for a while. He was being a good sport about it, but it's taking a toll on him. He's, his care for them is so intense that it's starting to leak out and the door's going to be open really soon. Paul's saying this door's going to be open. Satan may have hindered me, but there's other ways around, right? Not to be outsmarted. And so the basic summary of this section on the situation is that he's been torn away. He's done everything he can to get there to them. He can't take it anymore. He wants to make sure that they are cared for. And so basically say, this intense desire for you to be established is so intense that I want to act in this way. I want to bring about this solution. So that's where we lead next, the solution. Look at verse 2. I'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, that's the connection, right? Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ, for what? To establish and exhort you in the faith. That's the heart of this passage, right? We're away from you. We care so much, so much about you. We want to make sure you are rooted and established in the faith. And so, the solution, send Timothy. Pause there. Just notice. God's solutions are so personal. Okay? His solutions are so personal. They're wobbly, maybe, in the faith right now. Paul's concerned about the temptations they're experiencing, right? The difficulties they're up against. God's solution through Paul was to make sure that a person is sent. A solid Christian was on his way to help them get their footing and keep it. And so we sent Timothy. And Timothy is referred to here as our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel. I wouldn't mind that title. Oh, that's God's co-worker here. Glad to be associated with him. This is a really lofty title that's given to a very faithful and solid worker. This is kind of a signal that Paul's saying, I've sent my best. I've sent you my best. Sent Timothy to you, my very right-hand man, right? This man who, um, I have no one like him, right? Who would be so genuinely concerned for your welfare. Um, he's a man of conviction, a man of character, a man of competence. He sent, Paul sent, a well-equipped brother to stabilize them in their faith. That's the solution. He sent a well-equipped brother to protect them from the enemy of their faith. And so you can kind of see how straightforward the text is, can't you? You've got the situation on the ground. Paul's been ripped away from them, and he's been hindered from getting to them. So here's the way around it. Get Timothy in there. And I think part of the reason for that, by the way, is I think Paul's uh, a little more well-known than the others. And so 
it's easier for others to go under the radar than it is for Paul. Paul comes in and all hell breaks loose, you know. And uh, so Timothy is sent. Paul's not able to get there. And, uh, and so that's the basic thing. So um, the desire, the care for the spiritual well-being of other Christians <laughs> leads them to send a person, a solid Christian, to establish it. This really shows God's care, and it's meant to be a pattern for our care for uh, one another. And so the text is so straightforward. Let's spend the rest of our time looking at these seven strategies for establishing others in the faith. And um, just so that, you know, we kind of start out on the right foot here, we talk a lot about discipleship at FPC. It's just because it's everywhere in the Bible. You know, um, this book, First Thessalonians, is a book that actually talks a lot about the end times. It's going to build up to that in these later chapters. But I just want you to see, like, I can't get away in every single paragraph. There is just so much depth and richness when it comes to the kind of care and spiritual good we want to do one another. So when we talk about discipleship, that's a simple way of thinking about it. I think it was Mark Dever that, that described uh, discipleship as doing spiritual good for another person, or for another person, like to do them spiritual good. I uh, don't want to overcomplicate it. A couple weeks ago, I brought out how, uh, and I thought it would be a good Mother's Day sermon, but I had to use it early, but uh, that, that motherly and fatherly instincts that every believer is meant to have toward their, their, other, their fellow believers. Um, and uh, so when we talk about discipleship, we're just talking about trying to do spiritual good for each other with God-given, kind of gospel-shaped instincts to, to love people uh, well and help them not just come to Christ, but help them develop and grow, grow in Christ, right? To not just see them born, but to watch them grow up. And um, so it takes a lot of different forms. One of them is right now in the preaching of the word. This is part of discipling. Uh, Sunday school classes, instruction in the word of God in different areas of the Christian life. That's a form of discipleship. Uh, um, in the home, as we are training up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that's a form of discipleship. One-on-one -on -one discipleship and accountability um, and care and sowing in those truths. That's a form of discipleship, often one of the most effective ones. And, um, and so just to say, it can take a lot of different forms and a lot of different contexts. But the reality is that you want to do them spiritual good. Or you could say it this way. You want to see them rooted and established and built up in Christ. Or the Apostle Paul would say, I'm not stopping until you are mature in Christ on the day that he comes back again. That's what he's aiming for, to present people mature in Christ. That's, that's the heart of discipleship. So when we talk about these seven strategies of helping establish others in the faith, this is just trying to give you some footings, right? So a lot of ways there's basics, but then you can read the whole New Testament, and it's just going to keep giving layers of depth to these same basic realities of care and concern and effort to help other people grow in Christ. So here, these are all just derived from the text that we're looking at, and I think it'd be helpful to for you to see them kind of in principled form, or you could think of them as strategies. So here we go. First one of the seven strategies, be considerate. Be considerate. We can see in this text the deep care and heartfelt consideration that is just the kind of the theme that Paul says through the text. This is really in a lot of ways the occasion why Paul's writing right here is because he cares so much about them. This love kind of just drives everything. Um, and so this is the starting point, the first of the seven strategies, because if there isn't this kind of uh, considerateness, if there isn't this kind of 
uh, genuine heart care for other Christians, the rest of the stuff's all going to happen. So this is where it starts. Cares deeply. He cares deeply about their spiritual safety, right? Temptation from Satan, the one who's trying to hinder their growth, and their stability. The afflictions they're going through wants to make sure that they are not moved by what is happening. And so he's longing for a report. Give me something. I need something to know how they're doing and something to reassure me that they're being cared for. Hence, Timothy. He's going to go provide the kind of care and then come back and report, and then Paul will be able to breathe easy and sleep a little bit better at night. But that's, that's kind of the heartbeat, right? Is that he cares so much that it affects him. doesn't mean that Paul's a puddle and he's losing all of his stability, but it's something that he takes super seriously. He has an affection uh, for these people. And so his longing here and his desire to see them and to know how they're doing is not unlike like a parent when a child is out or gone from home and they're staying up late at night. The lights are on at home. They're staying up late because they're kind of restless until they know how their son or daughter is, is doing because there's that care, that longing. And they've tried a bunch of different things to see how they're doing, and now they just have to wait. They have to wait. And uh, that's that's the kind of care that, that is being shown here. And um, so being used of God to establish other people in their faith begins with our own hearts. It, it just begins at a fundamental level with our own hearts. Because I can't just give just a bunch of practical things that we can do and then bypass the heart. Because it's this actually kind of love that fuels everything else. You know, um, It's going to channel um, that love in all these other uh, directions of building people up. And so if you want to say at the beginning here, what, what do we need to do? We need to be considerate. And if we recognize even in our own hearts, because uh, we tend to be really selfish by nature, um, if we're honest with ourselves, we go like, I don't think a lot about discipleship, and I don't think a ton about the spiritual well-being of others, right? Um, and I think that can be all of us on a given day, right? It starts with the heart, and I think that's where God would have us kind of come back today. And so here, here's some application just to how to grow and be more considerate, just to abide in Christ, to try to spend time with Jesus and his word and prayer, to draw near to him. And part of it is because... That's where Paul's affection comes from. That's where his affection for these people comes from. It's his own abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. His own sense of God's care for him in Christ. And his own sense of God's care for them in Christ. Just moves him to want to be helpful. And so spend time abiding in Christ. Seeking to know his word. Obey his word. Uh, seeking to be near him. And uh, because what happens is the more... We spend time with Christ relationally like that, the more we start to embody his affections. And that's why Paul can actually say, um, I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. He says that in Philippians 1. I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So you want something lofty to aim at in your care for other Christians? Lord, I want your love. That pulsate through me. Like I want them to feel your love. I want to be able to say with some sense of integrity that I care for you, brother. I care for you, sister. I long for you like Jesus longs for you and cares for you. This is biblical language here set out as an example to us 
I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Spend time abiding with Christ, and his love for his people will rub off on you. Over time, it will do it more and more. And so let's not neglect that. And also, I think this is just a beautiful thought when it comes to abiding, is talk to him. Talk to Jesus about his people. Like Make that part of your conversation. Express your care. Talk to him about individuals and their situations and their needs both physical and spiritual, right? What they need. Talk to Jesus all about that and uh, and talk to him about your own heart. You know, and maybe that's the starting point here as you start talking to him about your own heart. Ask him. Say, Lord, I know the kind of affection you have for your people. Or I see a lack of it in me. I'm distracted by a lot of things in life. And you can say, Lord, work in me that which is pleasing in your sight. And then you can pray confidently, knowing that God loves to work in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. He loves to will and to work for his good pleasure. He takes pleasure in working these kind of things. But it starts at a desire level. It starts at a heart level. And so if you just say, like, my affections are dull, maybe toward God, maybe toward others, confess that. Like, be honest with the Lord about that, and then ask him to work and grow these affections in you as you spend time with him, and he rubs off on you. So here's the second one. The first one was be considerate. The second one is be selfless. Be selfless in your care for other believers. Be willing to make personal sacrifices to help brothers and sisters grow and stabilize. Um, Paul, we saw in the text, was willing to be left alone. Did you notice that in the text? Um in verse 3, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And so he moved on to Athens, and he's in this just idolatrous place. His soul's being ripped into his. He's watching people literally worshiping idols, you know, and uh, he's uh, troubled by that. But he was there alone. Like, he was there lonely. Why? Well, because he sent the people that would be the greatest comfort and help to him somewhere else. He sent them to go help other Christians. Um, in other words, he felt this, and we should feel this. This was costly for Paul to do that. That's why he says, I would be willing, I was willing to be left alone. This was costly in terms of companionship, you know, when there's someone you've really learned to kind of rely on and kind of sink with, and then for them to be gone. Like he felt that. Um, but also in terms of support, it's really hard to go into places and do certain things and not have that kind of support around you. And Paul's going, I'm willing to go without it. The Lord will be my help right now, but they can't go without it right now. And so in his mind, he's willing to be left behind. He's willing to be to selflessly uh, be inconvenienced, right? Because, you know, this is not convenient for Paul. And this is not personally ideal for Paul. But self was not at the center of Paul's existence as a Christian. Right? And so he was willing to send his best. you got to think about that. Paul sent his best. Timothy is a person he personally discipled. He poured his soul in Timothy. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul actually refers to Timothy this way. He says, um, I'm sending Timothy to do so. And he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Like, they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How, as a son with a father, he has labored with me in the gospel. 
Wouldn't Paul like for him to be with him in Athens, you know, at that time, going through this next stage, right? But instead, he's going, you know, for the sake of others, right? They can go. So to be selfless, to help others develop deep roots, it takes this kind of self-forgetting, self-denying, unselfish willingness to make personal sacrifices. And uh, so, um, recognize this about ourselves. It's really natural to want to preserve ourselves. We know this. This is our instinct. We kind of wake up the morning thinking in these, these terms. That's why we need to be in the Word every day, right? That's why we need to drive near everyone, because we are selfish creatures, and we think about what's going to be ideal for me, right? And so it takes a certain death to self to be able to go, yeah, but this is what this person needs, and that's what this person needs. And this is what Paul operated <coughs> out of. And so I think for us, we we kind of panic a little bit sometimes. Um, maybe you sense this in your own heart, where you start to make sacrifices, and it hurts. <laughs> like it starts to hurt, and you start to panic, because you're just like, what about me? Like, who's going to look out for me? Who's going to look out for my needs? But what if I give this up? And what if I give that up? And so we can kind of work ourselves into a little frenzy, you know, because we do want to preserve ourselves. But the feeling of sacrifice is love beginning to blossom. So don't stop it. Don't, don't nip the bud. Like, it's beginning to blossom. And so I think especially culturally, what we live in is like when there's sacrifice starting to happen, we feel the pain of it. We go, this can't be right. Right? And we just try to stop it short. And God's word is pushing us going, actually, you're just beginning to love. You're actually like, and it's beautiful. Like, let it go into full bud. Let this thing work out. Continue along that train of thought and watch me supply your needs as you selflessly lay your life down for another person. Right? <coughs> And this is what Paul did so beautifully here. And so my encouragement to you is selfless, being selfless, it is hard. It's hard to die to ourselves. But just realize this is part of the pathway of discipleship, of us growing and also growing through loving service to other people. And it is costly. But don't stop it while it's budding. Let it blossom. The next one is this. Be determined. Be determined. I like how this shows up in the text, where Paul is saying, I was torn away from you. Does the text end there? No. Saying, I tried to get there again and again, but if Satan hindered me. Does it end there? No. Therefore, while well, I can say no longer, I send Timothy to you, right? Eventually, I'm going to make my rounds back to you, but I'm going to make a way. I'm going to be determined. In other words, he's experienced some opposition. Like, we're often like, one wave of opposition, done. This can't be right, right? But it's just like wave after wave, and we're going, nope. We have someone, a, a vicious enemy, right? That's always going to be opposing us. So we recognize that, and we have a job to do. And we have a goal in mind, which is people's maturity in Christ on the day that he comes again. And we are not going to stop until that happens. We're not going to stop. We're not going to let Satan have the final word you know, in people's lives. And so there's these deterrents, there's these obstacles as we're trying to share the gospel and as we're trying to minister to people who know Christ and, and are trying to help them grow. But there's just, God wants to create this robustness in us, this determination, uh, this willingness to bear up steadfastly under weight 
and under difficulty, and when there's pushback, and be able to move through it. And that's how Paul did it. He didn't give up. He tried again and again. Then he was willing to take another approach, but he kept that vision of them mature in Christ in his mind. And I'm going to come back to that idea of them being presented mature in Christ. But this is the kind of determined care that will find a solution. Like, it will find a God-pleasing solution. Notice that it all started with love. Paul just loved them a ton, and he knows what God wants to do in their lives. He knows what Satan wants to do in their lives. He's going, I don't care what Satan wants to do. This is what, what God wants to do, and God's going to make a way. And so he just didn't give up. He just kept pressing, he just kept pressing in, and, and uh, so love finds solutions. You know, but when we give up quickly, solutions get killed in their infancy, you know. And so we press in, we press on. And I, may, I would imagine that's a word for some of you this morning. You're feeling, you know, just some of that, that opposition. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, and over very real spiritual demonic forces in this present age. We're fighting against things that want to destroy. Right. This simple act of love that continues resolutely in the same direction. And so I'm hoping to strengthen your resolve this morning, even by hearing this point. Remember in Nehemiah's day, right? They're trying to rebuild the walls, right? They've got a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand, Amen. right? They're building, they're protecting, they're being mocked, they're being threatened. And I just love Nehemiah's speech. I need to memorize it because it's just so worth quoting. Like, it's like, you know, lay yourself down for your sons, for your daughters, your great-grandchildren. Like, he just goes off just saying, do not be frightened. Stay determined. Stay resolute. Do not put the trial down. Do not put the sword down. Hold on to both of them. Right? You need both of them, the sword and the trial. But stay determined, brothers and sisters. And even right now, be praying that God would help you to be more resolute in your desire to grow in Christ and also your desire to help other people grow, no matter how hard it is, no matter how many obstacles there seem to be there. God, work this in us. We, we need this so much. And so don't be easily thrown off by resistance. And by the way, and I think you know this, sometimes resistance is a good sign. Like if you're really trying to do something for the kingdom, like, there's going to be added opposition to that. If you're just going to go and just go into the mold of the world, Satan's going to try to roll up the red carpet, and he's going to try to alleviate, you know, make this as easy as possible to walk this broad road, right, that leads to destruction, right? But this, this narrow path, it's hard, but it leads to life, right? And so we're going to continue to walk, on this path, not being easily thrown off, and when we experience resistance, we're going to take it as a compliment and keep walking forward. Just keep our eyes on the goal as we're trying to pour into other people and as we're trying to grow in Christ ourselves. Don't stop trying to do spiritual good for other people. So, be determined. Now, be protected. This one's going to be extra short because it really, I think, fits with that determination because there's that opposition from the enemy. Like, we need to stay resolute, but just recognize that part of our um, helping others be established in Christ more fully is a, a protectiveness, kind of a holy protectiveness. Again, we tend to feel these instincts personally when it comes to saving our own skin, 
right? But what's powerful and supernatural is when we actually care about other people's skin, you know? Um, we have a skin in the game in their lives. Like, we're invested in them. And so when they are being threatened, and when they are being tempted, and when they are being discouraged, we care. Like, there's, there's flags going off in our minds and hearts going, I gotta lean in. I got, it moves our hearts toward it. And so be protective of other believers. If you see they're being tempted and drawn away, you see their pattern of thinking is, is, is moving away from the ways that God would have them think, and they're starting to, you know, just get into silly ideas or wrong views of God or truth, and, and, and they're starting to drift. The kind of heart that's trying to be cultivated in us here is that we would actually have a protectiveness. We would care enough about them to kind of, hey, raise the flag, to have that kind of uncomfortable but deeply affectionate conversation with them because we, we care. We're protective of other believers. Paul knew what Satan wanted to do, right? He knew he went and planted them there, but he knows that Satan wants to do everything he can now to try to make sure that that tree doesn't grow very much, to make sure that that tree, that tree is just stifled, right? That it doesn't end up bearing any fruit, or at least not very much. And so this is part of that care. Again, that motherly and fatherly instinct, right? That protectiveness. This is kind of like the spiritual mother bear coming out, right? Where you care so much about people that you're trying to invest in that, that uh, you're not going to allow other forces to just have their way with them. You're going to lean in, and you're going to contend. You're going to anticipate and counteract Satan's tactics to hinder spiritual growth. And I just love Paul's here. Like, he looked at what Satan was trying to do. He did not give up. He pressed and determined. He made sure Timothy was there, because he knew if Timothy was there, Timothy's not going to be easily shamed. Right? And he knows that Timothy's presence there, and his faithfulness, and his discipleship instincts are going to be a huge part of stabilizing them. Like, if, if Timothy can get on the ground, things are going to go well. Okay? So, we think that way in the Christian life. And notice just how much of that protectiveness um, is meant to come in such a personal form. Right? Our desire to protect people is so much just going to come from making sure that, like, we're there or someone there is trustworthy to help them grow and mature. So, the next one is this be ready. Okay, so be protective, be ready. What number am I on? Five. Five, thank you. I guess I should have numbered them. I think there's seven. I've never been good at that. <laughs> okay, so number five, be ready. Be ready. Uh, be ready to help. And really what I'm getting at here is we need to be equipped. Okay, because a lot of things, you know, we can assume a lot of good intentions, but we're either equipped or we're not equipped to help other people. Okay, and I think you can see here, like, there's going to be other people that have real needs. They're going to need real help from someone like you, and you're either equipped or not equipped to go help them. And so um, we want to be equipped, and so we often talk about the three C's, conviction, character, competence. Right? Those three areas are, if you want, so I don't want to speak in vague terms about being equipped, right? Uh, kind of know Jesus more. Conviction, right? And accurate knowledge of God's word, being armed and equipped with an accurate knowledge of God's word, where you know the scriptures in an increasing way. Um, character, right? You are growing in humble obedience to God's word. Your life is progressively being shaped by it, so it's not just 
I have a lot of knowledge of the Word of God, but no, these things that I'm learning are actually taking real shape in my life, which means you've probably been one that's willing to get some accountability and other people looking over your shoulder to help you uh, actually grow in the things that you are learning. So conviction, character, and then competence. And this is an important one. And all of these things take time. It takes time to get an accurate knowledge of the Word of God. It takes time to actually slow down enough. We talk a lot about this in Sunday school, you know, in our distracted age. It just takes, there's no shortcuts to being equipped. If we care about this, and I'm telling you, this is at the heart of what we should be doing until Jesus comes back. If we care about this, we will move other things out of the way in order to make sure that we are growing in conviction, uh, in the Word of God, right? Uh, character, obeying the Word of God, and then competence. That actual ability to help other people with the word of God. Um, John was bringing this out. Elder John was bringing this out well in our Sunday school class. You know, this morning he was even just sharing humbly just how, like, when he, you know, he'll be realizing, like, okay, I know these things, but being able to actually speak them to somebody else, like, there's there can be a gap there, you know. And so, but then you start trying because you love people and go, oh boy, I got to get better at saying that, you know. So it gets clearer, so it's more understandable. And what's beautiful about it, and any teacher would be able to say this, like the more you actually do it, say, for example, you teach on a, a specific topic, right? Um, you speak on a different topic and, sh and share about that with somebody, like the next time you do it, there's another layer of wisdom in how you do it. And so just having the opportunities, and sometimes it might even be sweetly artificial in the sense that someone you love, maybe it's a spouse, um, maybe it's an older child that you have. Maybe it's a brother or sister of the Lord that you can just sit down with and say, look, I think I know this, but I'm pretty sure I can't explain it that well. So I practice, you know, or hey, you tell me about this specific topic. Like, explain sanctification to me again, right? And then you try to put in your own words and be willing to do that. Be willing to get it in you so that you are more competent in, in being able to pass on the truth because it's, again, it's one thing to have knowledge, right? It's another thing to have character, but for those things to be able to translate in actual help, concrete help to people, takes some measure of competence. Now, I'll just qualify it this way, because I think some of you could be hearing that and being like, look, I'm never going to be some great teacher. I'm never going to be the one that everybody wants to go to to get their Bible answers, you know? Um, and I'm saying, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you being you. In Christ, maturing, right? With a big heart that recognizes the needs of other people, and you are just have a tenacious desire and a willingness to sacrifice to grow, right? And conviction, character, and confidence. I'm not waiting for you to perfectly arrive, none of us have or will in this life, but for you to be making substantial progress so that when you get around other people, they're just helped by you. And what's beautiful about it, it's it's not about eloquence, right? It's not about your perfect mastery of something. So often, it's just a, a, a heart that is so devoted to the Lord Jesus. Someone that just really genuinely loves Jesus, loves being with him every day, right? Can't wait to be with him in person, and is and has a general knowledge of the Word of God, a growing knowledge of it, and it's becoming more experiential, and they have a heart to want to share those things with people. And they have a heart to want to stabilize other people with these things and encourage other people with these things and lift some chin. That heartfelt effort, dependent on the Holy Spirit, like God uses to move mountains in a Christian life. 
Like God will use that you to help lift someone's depression that they've had for two years. Because you can, with being you, God loves to use his people. And that's why, um, you know, as a church, like we want to focus on equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry among one another. It's because God is particularly pleased not just to use one person, but to use a whole bunch of them ministering to one another. And it's it's so beautiful as that grows and happens. And so uh, we know these things. I'm just throwing more fuel on the fire. Because uh, God's word just does that over and over and over again. So be ready. Do what it takes to be ready. Um, and um, I want to challenge you with this, that I think you'll know this experientially. It's one thing to be ready. It's another thing to stay ready. Okay? Because some of you might be going, by God's grace, I've grown quite a bit in conviction, character, and competence over time. And you have been useful, you know, in other people's lives. But this is not an automatic thing. This is not something that can just be stagnant. You can't run perpetually on yesterday's fuel, right? In other words, you have to stay ready. You know, imagine, you know, a military soldier, you know, um, passing his fitness test. It was grueling. He passed it, and then he just lets himself go. You know, like, you know, two months later, he can't do a pull-up, right? That's the guy we want on the front lines? But a lot of Christians, they'll kind of learn some stuff, get a little more competent at it, right? And then they coast. And they're not real useful on the front lines. They used to be, but they're not anymore. And so I have been so helped by Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy when he uses an analogy for Timothy that I just feel like this is, this is like he's enticing the godly heart say, ah, you want, want this, don't you? He says this to Timothy, okay? Think about this readiness, wanting to stay ready. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Then he says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He's saying this to a godly young man who is marked by conviction, character, and competence. But he's saying, Timothy, you're useful. Stay that way. Stay that way. And so some of us have got really lazy in the Christian life and we've been compromising with sin. And this word says, cleanse yourself. Cleanse yourself. Come to Christ like fresh. Acknowledge your sloth. Acknowledge your laziness. Acknowledge that tendency to coast. Ask him to forgive you for your sloth. To not be slothful and zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, right? This is what God wants for us. And so I think there's a place for cleansing here. But I love the treat that's on the other side of this. The motivation is like, you'll be useful. You will be useful. You'll be used of God. Set apart holy, holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That's how you, you got to stay ready. So if there's anything getting in the way of your readiness, if you've been getting out of shape spiritually, just take this as God's way of saying, all right, time to get back on the training regimen, right? It's time to put you back on the front lines where you're useful, okay? 
So we're going to fight to not just be ready and equipped, but stay ready and equipped. And uh, using the fact that other people have needs to motivate us to keep growing and to stay efficient. And honestly, I think uh, one of the one of the ways that I've seen this in my own life is to go, like, I think about and I know about a good number of the needs in the church, and I just know that I can't be healthy if I don't stay ready. So I just feel like life is, it's its not just about being equipped, I want to keep growing and being equipped in different ways, but it's like, I think most of the fight in a lot of ways is staying ready. Staying ready, being fit in mind and heart and my own devotion before the Lord, my own purity of heart and life, to fight for that for the sake of others. It's wildly motivating to me to think that there might be a brother or sister in need today that I don't have a timely word for because I've been letting my heart veg on them. And I hate that thought. And I've been there. You know, and you're just like, oh, I wish I could get that one back. Because you weren't in a position to love them well or to help them much or stabilize them or help them from some kind of temptation or out of form because I was being lazy. And so if that's you... Go to the Lord, cleanse yourself, and fight to not just be ready, but stay ready. Next, be patient. Be patient. Be patient with them, right? Because this is what happens. You just start dealing with the same stuff sometimes, right? Like Paul said, when I was with you, I told you all about the kind of afflictions that were going to come. Guess what happened? They came. What is Paul talking about again? The afflictions and how they're meant to respond. In other words, like, hit repeat. Okay, we can have this conversation again. I love how Paul instructs Timothy on this point. Um, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he says, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. In other words, keep teaching them. Keep guiding them. Be, be willing to give that same reproof again, that same correction, that same bit of counsel. Like It can be exasperating at times, but by God's grace, take a deep breath, lean in again. By God's grace, step back. And remember how many times the Lord has repeated the same instruction to you. And how patient the Lord has been with me and with you. And then let that freshly shape our instinct to go, I can bear with this a little more. I can have this conversation again. And it's powerful because sometimes you have that conversation. You have to have it for months. And they start to turn for good. Like in a better direction. And it's awesome to see that happen. And it came through patience. And patient instruction and a willingness to revisit again. Because, right, the temptation is to say something like, you should have known better, right? Or, how many times do I have to tell you? Or, oh, here we go again, right? Yeah, this, is, this is our instinct. And uh, we want to have a redemptive attitude toward brothers and sisters because we're all beset with weakness in different ways. And so we want to... We want to bear with one another in such a way that they sense the patience of Christ, and that also makes them want to rise up. Makes them want to rise up. Makes them want to fight their sin more seriously. Makes them uh, want to, as Paul says, to lay hold of what is really life, to flee certain things and pursue other things. It's it's beautifully loving patience is actually really motivating. So final one, be invested. Be invested. Be invested in them. So what if someone that you care about is going wayward, straying from Christ? What does your heart do? Do you feel lost? 
Like if another Christian you know, right, starts to go a different direction, like if you feel a sense of loss, a sense of concern, right, that's a good sign that there's an investment there, right? Like how do you feel when the, the stock market dips and you have your 401k and you're nearing retirement? Like, oh, okay, like you, your heart goes there, right, because you were invested. Like you were invested in it, and so, ooh, right? And I think on a spiritual level, God wants us to have such investments in other people, in other Christians, that the things that they do, like we're, we're invested in it. We feel it. We feel when there's profit, and we feel when there's loss, because we're invested in it. This is how Paul walked. Paul prioritized people. Paul prioritized people. And I love how uh, a brother, a number of us were at a, at a conference, and he was preaching, he just, in such beautiful, simple terms, was describing so many things that we're talking about right now. And uh, we talk about, like, going to ma- go make disciples of all nations, right? And he was just preaching on a simple text like that. And he just had this refrain of, we make people. We make people. You think about, you know, the different work that's represented here? Like, we make a lot of different products, right? But as Christians, the main thing that we work with is people. Like, we make a certain kind of people after the kind of image that God wants them patterned after. And so, um, it's a beautiful thing. And so, this is how Paul thought. People were his investments. We make people. That's what Paul would say. And so, Philippians 4, 1, listen to this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is how Paul taught to other people. Or in 2 Corinthians 1.14, just as you did uh, partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. When there's that mutual investment, there's a mutual boast. The Bible says don't boast in anything, but boast in the Lord. So there's something about our investment in one another that's not taking anything away from the glory of the Lord. It's actually magnifying it. And Paul got this in his bones. Philippians 2.16, he says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul talks like this a lot because he had a lot of investments. He had a lot of investments in others. It shows up in virtually every single book, you know, as he's talking. And so... When he says, you know, verse 19 of chapter 2, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? It's you. For you are our joy and crown. So I, I want to ask you this question kind of directly. Are you uncomfortable referring to other Christians as your joy and crown? Does that feel foreign? And I don't say this with a chip on their shoulder. I just say it tenderly. Like, if it feels foreign, we're missing a main thing. Like, we're missing something fundamental in the Christian We are meant to invest in people. <laughs> okay? Such that our investment is, like, it rises or falls in a lot of ways based on how they're actually doing spiritually in their life. I'm not saying we're putting our ultimate hope in people. Okay? There's a distinction there. Like you shouldn't like Paul's not a puddle right now. But there, like these are his real investments. And that's why he can say at the end of our passage, at the end of verse 5, he says, For fear that somehow the tempter would have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I, I made these investments. He's checking on these investments. He wants a report 
on his investments right now. And so he cares a ton. People were not his ultimate grounds for hope and joy. But as he's serving the Lord, he recognized that people were at the heart of where he should be putting his investments. And so his care for people was elevated in such a profound way, it'd almost be a stretch. But he could, because of the way he loved people, and the way he labored for them, look at them in the eyes and say, you are my joy and my crown. And I'm hoping that God, by his spirit, will make this more normal for us. Because um, then we know that we're actually getting this disciple-making work going in the right direction. We should understand that people are the best proof of work well done. So when you think about standing for Christ in vain, and hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? I hope you're longing to hear those words, but I, what I want to kind of help you see this morning is that's not just, he's not going to just be like, okay, how are you doing with your finances? That matters. That's a part of your stewardship before the Lord. But we tend to just think of really individualized things, not recognizing that the main investments are people. Right? And so, when he looks at the people that you have led to Christ, when he looks at the people that you've helped establish and grow in Christ, he's going to look at them and look at you and go, well done, my good and faithful servant. Paul knows that's how it's going to go down. That's why he's so serious about how they're doing, because part of it is he's invested, and he knows that on that day, like it's going to be his greatest joy to see these people mature in Christ. He gave his life to see them grow. He gave his whole life to seeing them know Christ and grow in Christ. And now to see the fullness of that, to see that come to full flower, he's going to say it was worth it all. And so I want all of us to arrive on that day and to hear a strong, well done. And I'm telling you, it's going to happen because you were invested in people, not just because you were doing some stuff. The people. So make sure that people are not cut out but actually people are the primary ways that you are um, showing your care, your love for God. And so in closing, all of these seven strategies, okay, all seven of these strategies, you could in some ways just go, did he just grow out of the gospel? Okay? I mean, stop and think about these different strategies and what we were what we were seeing, okay? Think about this consideredness. God so loved the world. God so cared for the world that he was willing to give his own self. God was willing to send his very best, even though it was the most costly thing that he could give. He gave his very best, and he put our eternal needs there. Right? Christ himself was selfless. Right? He came as a servant, ready to die in the place of sinners. Always, every single day, looking to serve God and by serving others. This is how Christ lived. And when he met opposition, he stayed determined. Right? He got wave after wave after wave. Did it stop him from going to the cross? Did it stop him from making yet another sacrifice? No, it didn't stop him. He went all the way. Why? Because he was protective of us. He was protective of us. And he knew the ultimate way we were going to be shielded was to be under his blood. Right? 
under the blood of the best, the most equipped worker that could ever come, right? The, the most equipped person that could ever walk alongside of us. The only person that can ultimately bring us the kind of stability and protection that we need. And all of it, he has done. And think about this even. The patience of God. Even now, the patience of God is the reason Christ has not forgotten. He's patient, not wishing that any should perish. But to come to the knowledge of the truth. So this morning, I hope as you hear these things, and even if you don't know Jesus, I hope that you'll just see like, wow, this apostle really cared. I hope that you'll look around here and say, like, these people care. But most of all, I think that you, I hope that you'll see just hear an echo of the care that God has for sinners like you and like me, and that you will turn from your sins, and that you will trust in Christ for forgiveness, and that you'll actually have a better picture of what your life should be spent doing uh, from the passage that you're hearing uh, from us. But think about this, brothers and sisters, how invested Christ is in you and in me. Even as we are longing for the well done, and I'm longing for that, to be able to hear that well done, to be able to present brothers and sisters before him mature on that day. It will be an incredible joy to have a crown of honor placed on my head and to see a crown of honor placed on your heads. But what's going to be really sweet as Jesus takes pleasure in honoring the work that he worked in us on that day, this is baffling and then rewarding us for it, right? Is that Jesus is going to look at us and he's going to go, you are my crown. Like you are my, you're the one that I invested. You see, all of our investments, right, the way that we invest in others is really just an echo of Christ's investment in us and the kind of pleasure that he takes in us. He delights in his people. And I just pray that his delight in his people would just translate in the kind of care that we share and show toward one another to make sure that each of us is rooted and established. So, this is important for us to wrestle with these strategies and for them to become more part of our lives. And we need to pray them into our souls in a lot of ways. And so, I would like to take a few minutes of uh, congregational prayer this morning. And so, uh, can I get a couple brothers? Um, and uh, we're going to have the mics going around. So, let's try to be somewhat efficient with it. So, if you can kind of be ready, raise your hands. The guys with the mics will be looking around. And uh, so let's cry out to God for these things to mark us.